Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by John Canetta. John is a director and owner of the Olympia, a fish and chip restaurant and takeaway based in Wishaw, Lancashire, Scotland. John, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks ever so much for your time and coming on to the programme to speak with me, John. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast episode is to discuss leadership as a whole and I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that leadership is something which is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the emergence of COVID-19 and also different business leaders having to navigate their way through this crisis. So for somebody working in your industry, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge. It's certainly been a challenging time. Obviously, this is something that none of us have had to deal with in our working life before, and we have no blueprint to uh, fall back on for advice or how to think moving forward. So there's certainly been a lot of thinking on our feet and just trying to react to things very quickly. And how have you had to adapt your own sort of leadership styles um, at all, uh, John, if you have had to, to meet this uh, crisis? Because I can imagine that, of course, um, managing people who will have their own concerns over this um, period is um, quite a challenge in and of itself. Absolutely. Uh, I felt uh, very much at the beginning of this crisis, I was relying on people to keep the business operating uh, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I personally didn't know if the business would be allowed to keep operating or be feasible to keep operating. Um, And also what I required was people to be able to come and work and feel safe in doing so. Exactly right. Um, Keeping communication channels open and making sure that people understand that, of course, it is safe to continue going into work and provide them that reassurance um, in a way has been hugely important. And I think there's been a little bit of challenge on leaders at the moment to provide that reassurance, haven't, hasn't there, John? Because um, people are looking to yourselves as leaders for that reassurance that they're looking for, understanding as to what's going to come in the future in a way. But really, with everything as uncertain as it is, the leader at the top of it all, who everyone's looking to for the answers, may not know much more than the people around them. And so that comes with its own pressures as well, doesn't it? That's absolutely correct. Uh, My feeling, going back seven, eight weeks ago at the start of this process, uh, was very much uh, that keeping the business operating was a result of three things. One, that we were still allowed to be open uh, as part of the lockdown. Number two, that it was financially feasible to remain open. And number three, that the people that working within the organisation still wanted to come to work and felt safe coming to work in order to keep us open. So I felt I had to try and provide as much as I could reassurance there, but with so much uncertainty, I personally didn't know what was safe and what was not, so I very much Mm. just fell back on government guidelines and that we would follow government guidelines to the best of our abilities, and the staff then had to feel safe and still wanting to come to work uh, in those terms. 
completely understand where you're coming from there john now we've heard a lot of um, of course stories from all over the the uk and indeed the wider world that this period has really brought out the best in people um whether they've had to adapt to working from home or whether they've continued to go in and work on site they've just been getting their heads down and really sort of getting them um, on with the job at hand um are there positives from your point of view to actually take from this in the sense that people are being thrust out of their comfort zones and still being able to persevere in the experience of almost crisis management in a way is going to build resilience for the future? I think that's absolutely correct. I think right now people weren't coming to work or continuing work because they believed it was in their financial best interest. I felt as if people were working to maintain and look after the the living and uh, the normality that they have in their lives. And that was what people were working and fighting for over this period, more so than it being in their financial best interest to come to work on a day. Mm, completely understand where you're coming from with that one, John. And um, if we think about also responses to this uh, current period from a leadership perspective as well, there's been a lot of emphasis on proactive approaches versus reactive approaches, haven't there? And what I mean by that, for example, is with the UK lockdown, um, it came into force on the 23rd of March, as we all know. And if we look, for example, on the other hand, at, say, the Italian lockdown, they, of course, um, shut everything down as early as the 9th of March. So we're much quicker off the uh, the bat, so to speak, in that sense. Um, whereas we were a little bit more laissez-faire initially, I think it's fair to say. If we take that sort of idea away from politics and just away from this situation, John, would you describe yourself um, from a business leader perspective as somebody who likes to be proactive when difficulties arise and getting on top of them straight away and diving straight in? Or do you tend to sit back and let things play out a bit and then maybe take action from that stage? To be honest, I would generally fall into the second category, uh, Possibly earlier in my career, I would have always tried to be more proactive. Uh, but I think sometimes that you can put time, energy and resources into a scenario which may not always play out exactly how you had predicted so early mm. on. So I find sometimes it's better just to sit back. Obviously, you, want, you need to be able to move quickly once you make your decisions but you need to try and get as much information as possible on board before you start taking decisions that have a a long-term impact. Exactly. It's always about, um, of course, thinking and considering the long term as opposed to uh, just what might happen in the uh, the short for short for certain there, John. And um, as, you, as you've, of course, developed um, through your career and maybe ad- adjusted that approach, what would you say have been some of the biggest influences on you as you've developed? Are there any people, for example, that maybe you've looked up to that have had an impact on you and your approach? To be honest, I can't think of anybody offhand. I think my attitude has just changed over the years through mistakes that I've made earlier in my career um, and just try to be more, uh, have a more mature head in making these decisions. I think experience, as you say there, John, is one of the uh, the biggest teachers. And in a way, I think it's almost necessary um, in terms of developing into effective leaders to have that experience of making mistakes, having tried new things, maybe suffer one or two setbacks and then use that and embrace that as a learning experience. Because without that, we can't really um, develop and improve, can we? 
I would 100% agree with that. I always feel that nobody earns particularly easy lessons in life. A lesson has to be hard learned before it really cements uh, in your brain. And it's very hard to have people learn from your mistakes. People need to make mistakes to to learn and move forward. Mm, I really do agree with that, John. And do you think that um, business leaders, good business leaders especially, are people who are born with certain qualities or do you think it is something that you can learn as you go through life? I would say it's something you can learn as you go through life. I think necessity is always the mother of all, uh, well, the, the word of invention, but uh, necessity necessity breeds that uh, ability to learn because if you don't learn and you don't adapt, then you can never move forward. Mm. Very, very interesting uh, perspective there, John, uh, for sure. And if you were to, based upon your experience, give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role, what sort of advice would you give them? That's a very interesting question. I, I think I would tell them to be careful whose advice they take and to consider things well before jumping in with both feet to uh, decisions that have long-term impacts. Very sound advice indeed, John. And if we do keep that focus on the uh, the future before we do wrap things up on uh, the programme today, do give me some idea of what you envision the next 12 months holding for yourself and for the Olympia and also what you hope to achieve in that time, not just in getting through COVID-19, but also for beyond the pandemic as well and looking forward from there. It's an interesting question. I think uh, most businesses, especially in the hospitality sector, have taken on uh, more uh, debt over this period than they would like to have. Um, and moving forward, we need to see that there is a a path to get out of that situation and start moving back onto positive balance books. I think that uh, it's very much going to come down to a lot of government decisions and how they try to stimulate the economy at the end of this period, whenever the end of this period is. But I think a lot of companies would be taking on many years' worth of debt at the moment, which they may or may not be in a position to service. But they need to know that there is going to be a sufficient economy in the wider community to allow them to operate their business in such a way that they can service the debt. Mm. Let's certainly hope that that does prove to be the case in future, John. I think it would actually be quite um, fascinating from a listener's perspective when we start to see um, things taking shape as we move through this crisis. If we could even catch up and have you back on the programme just to look at what we've said retrospectively and see how some of those hopes are being borne out for sure. Um, For now, John, I've got to say it's been a really informative experience having you um, on the air with us and also a really enjoyable one. And thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me. It's been a real, real pleasure. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to voice my thoughts and concerns. Thanks ever so much, John, and do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well. Will do. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. 
That was John Canetta, director and owner of the Olympia. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair and having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough back in August 2015 as he was elevated to the House of Lords for the first time. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. 
commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. 
hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action uh, remember a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.